There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with, well, today, it's Greg Kraminski back in the hot seat. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, good to see you. Likewise. You've had a couple weeks off. What have you been doing? I did. Well, I was in New York for a week. Yeah. And that was kind of a blast. And I actually can't remember why I wasn't here two weeks ago, but... I think you had an appointment or something. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Okay. Well, in, in your absence, we had Steve present with me and we interviewed somebody, Brad Barrett. That yes. was an interesting conversation. Right on. And then last week, Blair and I talked about pensions, RIFs, LIFs, TFSAs, et cetera. Very financial planning oriented right episode. I know you haven't listened to that one yet. Not yet. No. You know, how are the other listeners supposed to think that they should listen to the show if the co-host hasn't listened to the most recent episode? it just came out yesterday, okay? Fair enough, fair enough. And I was on the road. Actually, (laughs) it was a good time. I could have have listened to it yesterday. (laughs) Well, today we're going to talk about alternative investments. But before we get into that, kind of wanted to look at where the market is year to date. Right on. And the reason I wanted to do that is... I don't know, six to 12 months ago, we had a lot of people saying, should we be invested? I mean, because the market was down a lot. A lot. Right? Inflation was super high. We've had something like what? How many straight interest rate hikes in a row? Quite a few. Oh, yeah. And the stock market was in a challenging position. So when we talk about the market, I'm just going to reference the S&P 500 today for that benefit. So back in July of 2022, the S&P 500 was down 30%. And it would be easy to understand why people would feel angst about being invested when the market's down 30%. And what was the advice that we gave people back then, Craig? Maintain your asset allocation strategy and rebalance your portfolio. Yeah, the same advice we give during all parts of the cycle. And there's a reason for that because that S&P 500 year to date, so January to uh, June 15th, this is this data, is at 14.2%. It's not bad. That's way better. And so all you had to do was stay invested and ideally rebalance, as you mentioned. That's right. And you benefit from that wave. And I guess the reason I wanted to talk about that is because we've also had a lot of people over the last year or so that look at things like, well, maybe I should just buy GICs, right? So if somebody had exited the market and bought a GIC in January because they couldn't take it anymore because the market was down, the stock market, they would have bought a maybe a 5% one-year GIC. Yep. Mm-hmm. Not too bad, right? But it means they've given up like 9% return just to guarantee a one-year return of 5%. And the year is only half over. Yeah, we're only six months in. So there's a reason why we look at historical data of bear markets, bull markets, and what happens going into them, coming out of them, And there's a reason why we advise people to stay invested. And if you're one of those people that was wondering about moving to a GIC and you didn't, well, congratulations. 
you did like three times better than what you would have done in that GIC. That's right. Yeah. Yep, exactly. You know, and I think it actually leads nicely into today's discussion. Oh, good. Yep. Because we're kind of winging this. Well, no, because 2022 was one of those years where nothing seemed to work. Stocks didn't work. They were down anywhere from, I don't know, 10% in Canada to 20% or more in the U.S. and international markets. And bonds didn't work either. Bonds were down about 11.5%, you know, both in Canada and the U.S. And so that leads people to think, okay, well, there's got to be a better way. And so in years like that, you hear a lot of talk about alternative investments. And basically an alternative investment is anything that doesn't fall into the category of stocks and bonds. Okay, and with the theory that, okay, well, maybe an alternative investment can give me a better return than either stocks and bonds because this year both of them did poorly. So I thought maybe it would make sense just to talk a little bit about alternative investments, what they are, how you can actually participate or buy them, Mm -hmm. and whether or not you should. You know, so we'll take a look at the end of the discussion about what they are. We can talk about how did they do. And so we'll kick it off by starting to talk about, first of all, what is an alternative investment? And so, as I mentioned, it's typically something that's an alternative to stocks or bonds. And and alternative investments started out as primarily investments that were meant for either institutional or accredited high net worth individuals because of a few things. They can have a complex nature. They're not regulated the way a lot of publicly traded securities are. They might have more risk you know, than others. They have high minimum investments and fee structures, which is critical, particularly when you compare them to exchange-traded funds or mutual funds. And so a lot of those alternative assets are, as I say, meant for or were originally meant for institutional or high net worth investors. And many are also very illiquid, meaning that unlike a a stock or a mutual fund where you can sell with a two-day settlement, many of these assets are not liquid. They have either monthly or sometimes a less liquidity. Like quarterly or annually. That's even, right. Right. So you mentioned the high net worth space investing in alternative investments. Yeah. And I've run into this over the years too, where people say, well, you know, once you hit a certain level, you should probably look at things like hedge funds as an example, right? That, oh, all the wealthy people invest in hedge funds. You know, we tend to say, no, the wealthy people invest in the same things that you're invested in, right? right? Which is broad market type of investments. Have you ever done a search of the top 10 wealthiest U.S. citizens? I have not done that search. You should do it sometime. Yeah. I'll give you the punchline here. Mm -hmm. Seven out of 10 of them are hedge fund managers. Interesting. Yeah. So why is that? Let me ask you that. Why would seven of the 10 wealthiest people in the U.S. be hedge fund managers? I'm going to suggest that it's because of high fees charged by hedge funds. I think you're exactly right on that. But to me, there's always this misunderstanding that like, oh, well, I need to be invested where the wealthy people are. That's right. Well, and listen, and hedge funds, which you mentioned, are basically the primary method of investing in these alternative or have been historically the primary method of investing in these alternative investments. And so let's just talk about the kinds of investments that you might see as alternatives. So one could be real estate. Now here we're not talking about real estate companies like real estate investment trusts that trade on the market as individual, like individual stocks. We're talking about possibly investing directly in physical properties or 
bare land or things like that, even farmland. So this would be the kinds of investments that would be more possibly on an individual investment level rather than a broadly diversified fund. Commodities, things like gold, silver, oil, agricultural products, managed futures, those are very common alternative type of investment. I mentioned farmland, art and collectibles, you know, so some investments might double as a hobby, you know, so art, sports memorabilia, entertainment memorabilia, collectibles, you know, these kinds of things. Many of those can act as alternative investments. In fact, back in 2020, NFTs, non-fungible tokens, would be classed in that sort of category. You haven't heard about those recently, have no, you? No, I yeah. haven't heard a lot since, since 2020. Let's just go back to commodities for a second, because one of the things that came up last year is, what was the one sector that did really well last year? It was energy. And a lot of people said, why would I be invested in this diversified pool of equity holdings? I should have just been in energy, yeah. right? And the price of crude at the time, I think it peaked around $120 yeah. for West Texas crude mm-hmm. last year. Today, well, as of yesterday, it's $69 a barrel, yeah. right? And year to date, so January to June 15th, it's actually down 14%. Yeah. So if we just pointed out that the S&P 500 was up 14%, and the price of crude was down 14%, that's a pretty big spread. Sure, that's right. And if you look at, I mean, crude, the example you brought up, I mean, if you recall back in 2020, pandemic, you know, global recession, I think crude, I think at its lowest, West Texas traded somewhere in the mid $20 range. And in fact, crude futures actually went negative one. Yeah, negative, one, negative for, $35. For a day or two, you know, so $26 up to 120, now back to 69. Listen, if you could have timed that exactly perfectly, you could have made a lot of money. But of course, nobody can. So we're just talking a little bit about the types of investments that might be classified as alternatives, certainly cryptocurrencies we've heard a lot about over the last number of years, and that would certainly qualify venture capital. This is interesting, private equity or private debt, right? And so, of course, we're used to investing in equities through public markets, but you can, through alternative investments, invest in private equity, which are just basically, it's it's a type of stock investment, but rather than, you know, the shares of those companies trading publicly, they trade privately among a smaller number of investors. Mm-hmm. And private debt is something you're hearing about a lot right now. Right. Almost every company that has the ability to is coming out with a private debt pool or a private debt fund. Exactly. Yeah. And again, like private equity, private debt is debt. Just like the debt that we buy on the public markets, it just so happens that it's private. And one of the features of alternative investments is very often they can be subject to what I would call a less clear legal structure than conventional investments, less regulatory oversight. And so it's pretty important that investors conduct a lot of due diligence when they're considering those investments. Okay. Now, typically, again, as I mentioned, a lot of these alternative investments and hedge funds are available only to accredited investors with those people with net worth maybe exceeding a million dollars, let's say, or with annual income of two hundred or $300,000, whatever the, the limits might be, depending on your jurisdiction. But that's really who these types of investments are intended for. Well, and there's a reason for that. Right. Right. You have to sign an accredited investor form stating that you understand that you could Lose all of your money. Exactly. And the reason they set those limits is that somebody has decided that if you have a million dollar net worth and you lost $100,000 in a 
private pool that you're going to be okay. Exactly. So let's just talk about some of the pros and cons. Well, what are the pros or advantages of alternative investments? Well, they claim to offer diversification benefits. I'm going to address this a little bit later. They claim to offer higher return potential than traditional investments. Okay. And that would certainly be the claims would be that these will do better when the other investments don't do well. They may offer some protection against inflation. That would be the theory of things like commodities primarily in real estate. They may allow investors to more specifically select the kinds of investments that they prefer. So if somebody really is hot on investing in real estate, then they might prefer to do it privately rather than through the public markets. Now, here's turning a con into a pro. I mentioned that these types of alternate investments can be a liquid. And because they're a liquid, it's more difficult to panic sell. And so you might actually create some price protection because you don't get these short-term panicked moves in the market where everybody wants to get out at the same time and that would create a price problem. Now, what are the cons or disadvantages of alternative investments? Well, we talked about higher fees and transaction costs. And one of the typical fee structures in hedge funds, for example, would be the 2 and 20 model, where you pay a 2% annual management fee and then 20% of any profits over whatever their hurdle rate is. And in many cases, the hurdle rate is T-bills. Yeah. And what happens if they don't meet the hurdle rate, Greg? Well, what happens if they don't meet the hurdle rate, then of course they don't collect their 20% bonus and they may end up closing down the fund and starting a new one. Yeah. (laughs) So (laughs) that always gets me. We didn't meet it. So we're going to close this one and we're going to start version B. Exactly. With a new hurdle rate that's lower. That's right. They might have higher risk than traditional investments. The lack of transparency and regulatory oversight I mentioned, they can be very complex. And so for novice investors to understand or make decisions, it could be very difficult. And the other side of the illiquidity pro is that they're more difficult to sell. If you have a three-month or a one-month hold before you can sell your investment, then that might create a problem, particularly if somebody needs to liquidate. Mm -hmm. So that's hedge funds and alternative investments. One of the new things that investment managers or corporate finance departments have come up with because of the various barriers of alternative investments are something called liquid alternatives or sometimes called the liquid alts. So what are liquid alternatives? Liquid alternatives are basically mutual funds or exchange traded funds that are try to provide investors with the same diversification and theoretical downside protection that alternative investment strategies offer And they do it, again, through a mutual fund structure, which offers the selling point of being able to buy or sell these funds daily. So whereas the liquidity issue of, you know, sort of alternatives in general is that you might have to hold on for a month or three months, whenever the redemption window is, these liquid alternatives can be bought and sold daily like a traditional mutual fund. They also tend to have lower minimum investments than a typical hedge fund. Because you don't have to fill out the accredited investor no, form, No, you don't right? need to fill out the accredited investor form, and you don't have to pass those net worth or income requirements to invest. Yeah. So listen, there's, again, lots of people lined up on both sides of whether or not liquid alts are a good thing. Some argue that the liquidity that's offered won't actually hold up if the market conditions get tough, because regardless of whether it's a mutual fund or a mutual fund alternative, a liquid alt, or a regular alternative that does not have daily liquidity, 
the fund manager still has to sell assets in order to meet the redemptions. Mm -hmm. And if the assets that the liquid alt is holding are not particularly liquid themselves, then there may be difficulty meeting those redemption requests in a kind of a trying market condition. Yeah, listen, I'm not trying to poo-poo alternatives or liquid alternatives or anything like that in this discussion, Greg. I think it feels like I'm coming across that way, which I I probably am because I have my own internal belief system that doesn't align with things that are illiquid or add in extra risk that people may or may not need outside of just being invested in the equity markets and bond markets, et cetera, right? Right. But I think the important thing is that the way you might take one side or the other, because we always try to get people not to make investment decisions based on their beliefs and feelings, but based on facts and history. And so as we go through this, I will discuss some of the the actual results of the liquid alt space over the last number of years, and then we can see whether or not they make sense. Okay. Looking okay. forward to it. Yeah. So the idea, again, of liquid alts is to counteract some of the drawbacks of alternative investments by by having a product that can be redeemed daily, like a mutual fund that has low minimum investment amounts and lower fees. But because they're alternative investments, they can still include things that aren't stocks and bonds. So they might be, you know, fine art, they might be private equity, derivatives, commodities, real estate, distressed debt, private debt, et cetera. Maybe tulips. Exactly. Maybe tulips. Tulip mania. Yeah, exactly. So I think the idea is that these liquid alts now are available in a mutual fund wrapper that allows people to try to find alternatives or different strategies to achieve what they consider better returns than stocks and bonds. And so here's some of the more common strategies in the liquid alt area. Okay, the first one would be long short equity. Now that's a typical hedge fund strategy where the fund managers try to use both long positions, meaning buying stocks that they believe are going to outperform the market, and then shorting, meaning selling stocks or selling the entire market, something that they think will underperform on average. And so you could be net zero with your stock exposure. And so it may be a little hard for people to understand, but of course we've talked about in the past that you can sell a stock that you don't own. Mm-hmm. Well, look at GameStop as exactly. an example, right? Yeah. And so you sell yeah. a stock you don't own, you have to borrow it and there's a cost to that with the goal of buying it back later at a lower price. Yeah. Well, I think the easy way for me to understand this and the way I would describe it to somebody is like, let's say somebody believes that the US stock market is going to have a negative return for the next I don't know, three months, but they also believe in being invested in the equity market in the long run. So the fund manager could short the S&P 500 in essence, right? But also have long positions in the same market for the long run, right? That's right. That's right. And so that long short equity is meant to be, well, I'm net zero equity exposure. You know, you could be long and short exactly the same quantity. So you're net zero equity exposure, but you still believe you have a chance of a positive return by virtue of the things that you're holding doing better than the things that you're selling. So that long short equity is very common, non-traditional bonds. And those would be things like maybe high yield foreign debt, for example, some of the things that don't get reflected in the overall bond market indexes. Mm -hmm. Okay. And, and again, private debt there as well. Managed futures, which I mentioned earlier, and these are just ways of investing in typically the commodity futures market, which is just a way of trying to predict 
the direction of different types of commodities in the future. And those could be precious metals. They could be agricultural products, et cetera. Sow bellies. Sow bellies, exactly. Isn't sow bellies one? Yep. Yeah. Do I got that right? Pork bellies. Pork bellies. Pork bellies, yep. orange juice futures. Absolutely. Et cetera, et cetera. Yep. Sow bellies. Where did that come from? <laughs> well, okay. They're, they're still pigs. Yeah. <laughs> they're still pork. And then there's multi-alternative types of funds which combine different strategies such as the ones we already talked about. And then there's a whole range of types of categories that would be included in these liquid alts. So there could be a multi-currency. Volatility is something that's traded. People will trade yeah. the VIX index, leveraged commodities, etc. So there's a lot of different types of liquid alternatives, many managed or offered by some of the big companies in the US, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Morgan Stanley, all offer liquid alternatives. And in Canada, most of the large investment firms offer liquid alternative options as well. But wait, what does the data show us? How have these done? Well, exactly. And so we do have some data. And again, as I say, in times like 2022, when traditional stocks and bonds did not do well, this is when people get quite enthusiastic about liquid alternatives. So there's some data from Dimensional Fund Advisors that followed the performance of the liquid alt space basically from 2006 to 2022. Now, there's been quite a growth in that space over the last 16-year period. And in fact, in the U.S., there was roughly 20 liquid alt funds in 2006 and more than 100 in 2022. And so what they've done is though they've looked at the performance of those liquid alts over that entire time frame. And uh, basically their conclusion is, well, the popularity of liquid alternatives can't be traced to strong fund performance. So when they look at the annualized return for those strategies, they found that they trailed that of global stocks by 4.2 percentage points per year. Per on, year. Or on average. Wait, and wait, wait, like make that point again so people can understand that. Tell you what, I'm going to give you the number, the actual okay. numbers as All we right. go through here. But they also underperformed global bonds by 1.7 percentage points from June 20, 2006 to 2022 right. as well. That's right. Yeah. And so only when they compared it against one month U.S. Treasury bills did the liquid alts manage to get a slight return advantage, but with, you know, 10 times higher volatility. So here's some of the returns, you know. So if you look at the annualized return for liquid alternatives from June 2006 to June 2022, 1.73% per year. The Russell 3000 index, which is the broad U.S. market index, 9%. The U.S. aggregate bond index, 343 MSCI All, Can All Country World Index, 594 And the uh, Bloomberg Global Aggregate Bond Index, 344 And so you see that over that entire time frame, they did not do what they claimed they would do. Now, what this doesn't show is that probably in a year like 2022, that was one year where they probably, and I don't have the data in front of me, did well relative to traditional stocks and bonds. Well, I mean, just like we talked about, if you have a commodity-based liquid alt fund that is focused in energy, you did really well last year. Yep, probably hit it out of the park. Exactly. Right? But as you said, West Texas was $120 a barrel, and today it's 69 It's probably not doing that great. That's right. Yeah. And so DFA concludes that, you know, when, they, when they're considering investments that belong in an investor's asset allocation, they should satisfy one of two main rules, either increasing expecting return or managing risk. And their view 
is that the liquid alts don't actually check the box for increasing expected return, nor do they check the box for managing risk. And so it's also not really clear, you know, when you diversify a portfolio, you add an asset class to provide a diversification benefit, right? And the problem is, and it's why we end up with the kinds of results maybe that we've had, is that many liquid alternative strategies basically start from the same building blocks as the global stocks and bond markets. And the only difference is they deviate somewhat in their security selection and weighting, even shorting securities, you know, attempting to deliver positive returns that are uncorrelated to stocks and bond markets. So when we talk about long-short strategies, well, they're just using the public stock and bond markets. And rather than investing in the whole index, they might be buying certain stocks and shorting other stocks as a way to try to add value. But when you slice and dice the same securities, that doesn't really constitute an expansion of your opportunity set and doesn't really make your portfolio any more diverse. You're still holding a portfolio of stocks and bonds. So what's the alternative to alternatives? And essentially, when you look at the stock and bond markets, they are already broadly diversified. As we've talked before, I mean, the global stock market includes over 10,000 securities. Global bond markets, I would argue, probably the same or more across 40 countries and all sorts of different currencies. And unlike, you know, some of the goals of alternative investments, stock and bond markets have a history of increasing expected returns or managing risks. And so those liquid alternatives may look attractive when traditional asset classes like stocks and bonds are down, like over 2022. But over long periods of time, you may end up being better off just by having a diverse portfolio of stocks and bonds. Yeah, I want to go back to your point that you mentioned DFA made the two points necessary to including something in an investment portfolio was to increase expected return or manage risk. And we believe, rightly by the way, (laughs) that you can increase your expected return and manage risk by adjusting your asset allocation to just the broad stock and bond markets. And that you don't need to add in extra layers of volatility, extra layers of fees to try to make it something that it's not. Well, that's right. And complexity. You know, we always believe it's important for investors to understand what they own. And a lot of these alternative strategies are not simple to understand. We talked about long, short strategies. There's convertible debenture, convertible arbitrage strategies, and a number of very complex strategies that they may provide some benefits to people that are actually understand exactly what they're doing. And there's no question that certain strategies can provide decent returns in the long run. But again, they can be highly specialized. They can be riskier. They can be more expensive. And in the end, they may be unnecessary for a typical investor to have a very positive, successful, and you know, an ideally profitable investment experience. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and all I'd like listeners to take away from this is just ask the questions like, is this reasonable? Whatever the investment being pitched to them is, you know, because I'm sure Bernie Madoff's clients all thought that it was, they were doing great, right? I'm not suggesting that these are all like that. Absolutely not. That's not what I mean. But what I mean is like, if you run into a fund that has done, I don't know, some massive return, 
Is it reasonable to expect that return to be replicated in the future? And that goes the same for public markets too, like you mentioned. I mean, Kathy Wood's ARK Innovation Fund a few years ago, it returned 150 or 200%, right? And it gathered billions and billions of dollars in assets under management as a result of those returns and has since lost about 80% of its value. Well, exactly. And, and a lot of those types of investments, which we've talked about in the past, are thematic investments, you know. And so the the ARC Innovation Funds are thematic investments based on technology, healthcare, genomics, et cetera. You mentioned oil and gas. That's a theme. That's a sort of a commodity-based theme. And many alternatives are whether it's real estate, whether it's cryptocurrencies, whether it's managed futures or commodities. And so I think we believe, and history will probably bear out the fact that a well-diversified, properly diversified portfolio of stocks and bonds and some real estate, we do participate in the public real estate area, will serve you just fine at a very reasonable cost. And the further part of my argument, and I know we got to wrap this up right away, but this is all very cyclical. So when you see a housing market bubble, well, you want to participate in that, right? When you see a gold price bubble, you want to participate in that. You know, I mean, energy, it doesn't matter. Pork bellies, <laughs> I mean, whatever, right? Whatever the case might be, when you see a rally happening in a certain sector, there's going to be somebody that's going to show some great returns as a result of that. Right. And the investors just need to understand How does that play into your overall plan, your overall portfolio, your overall risk level, right? Exactly. And not only that, to accept the fact that when you have a highly diverse portfolio of thousands of positions, whatever those stocks are that are doing particularly well, you're participating. You may not have all of your money invested in them, but you're absolutely participating with some of your money. I had somebody call me, uh, it was the last year, and they said, you know, I'm really interested in investing in semiconductors. I said, well, you're already invested in semiconductors. Just by the nature of owning the broad-based market, you already have those companies. You're just not specifically overly exposed to that specific Yeah, you're not concentrating in that area, and and that's probably the safest way to go. Yeah. All right, we better wrap it up, eh? Let's wrap it up. Yeah, okay. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.